Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Verse 21. Those of you who are here usually will recognize that This is another in the series of messages that I'm going to be bringing from the book of James. This is the third one, I believe, uh, from the first chapter. Beginning at verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. May the Lord add his blessing to this portion of his word. Let's unite together in a moment of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful that we can come as your children into this time of worship. We felt your presence in our midst as we have been led with the choir, as we've offered up our prayers, as we fellowship together this day, Lord, we know that you are a real part of our lives. We come this morning from different backgrounds, with different problems, different concerns, with heartaches and burdens that we know not of. But Lord, you know each of us in a special way. We pray that as we continue through this service, that you will take the word that we have read, the word that shall now be spoken, and apply it to our lives and give us a spiritual lift that will place joy in our hearts, spring in our step as we serve you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were present in the last two services when I preached from the first portions of this chapter, you may remember that we made note of the fact that there is a difference between being tested of God and being tempted 
They are not identical. God does put us to the test to determine our Christian fiber, the caliber individual we are. But God does not lay before us the potential to sin. That comes from the devil. He is the one who determines uh, that he will lead us astray, if he possibly can, by putting before us those things that are contrary to God's will. And verse 12 of the chapter here, as we began, makes this statement that God recognizes a person who endures temptation, and in this particular case, it is talking about enduring the testing. Blessed is the man that endures the test that God places upon him, for when he is tried, then he says, the person will receive a crown of life to those that love him. Our love of God is demonstrated in our undergoing the test that God has placed upon us. And as a consequence of that enduring the test, we shall be blessed of God for our faithfulness to Him. He goes on in verse 13 to say, Let nobody say when he is tempted that he is tempted of God, and here the word tempt is that to do evil, for God will not tempt anybody. You know, one of the things that I have discovered in my own life, and I know in the lives of many others, is that we give God the blame when things go wrong. Why did God let that happen? What makes you think God is the guilty party? Why should I think that God has brought everything to bear upon me or upon you? Do we not realize that there are two other elements in the makeup of our life? One is the influence of Satan upon us. And secondly is our own personality, our own determination to do what we want to do instead of doing what God wants us to do. And so much of what comes upon us comes as a result of our own inability to withstand the temptation that the devil throws at us, and so we yield. So he says in these verses of Scripture that temptation equals lust, lust equals sin, sin equals death. God in the Garden of Eden said to Eve, don't. And Satan came along and said, oh, why not? And Eve said, well, I can't think of a good reason why not, and therefore I shall. And this is the pattern that man seems to take. As he faces the desires to do wrong, God will say no, Satan will say try it, and we yield to the will of Satan. 
Verse 16 is a very important verse. When he says, do not err. A modern translation, if you have one, probably would say it this way, do not be misled. God does not tempt. God only tests. Therefore, those things that come into our lives that are bad, that are sinful, that are wrong, have not come from God. Verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Good things come into our lives from God. Bad things don't come into our lives from God. I think we need to get that straight. Good things come to us from God. God is not the author of bad things. You know, I have been confused by that verse 17 for a long, long time. And in preparing for this message, I did a lot of study and research on what is meant by God calling himself the Father of Lights. I don't know if that is of any interest to you or not. If you're a Bible student, maybe you'll find this of some interest. Why would he call himself the Father of Lights? Well, remember... Well, let's, let's, before I make the statement, let's go on with that verse. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Now we begin to get the key. If you were standing in perfect light, there would be no shadow. God does not cast a shadow. There is not even the slightest hint of color, meaning darkness, about God or his image. He portrays himself in the position of absolute perfection, absolute light, when there isn't even the slightest amount of turning that he would make that would cast a slight shadow. Listen, we cast shadows. Shadows cast doubts. Doubts cause distrust. God does not turn so much as to cause even the slightest shadow of doubt. That's not true with us. We've learned over the years to be very, very uh, suspicious of each other. Why are we suspicious of each other? And that's because we have learned that we can't trust each other. Have you ever told somebody a real good secret? Deep secret. Promise on whatever is holy on a stack of Bibles and all the things you've gone through that you'll not tell anybody. Yes, I promise. Tell me. And so you reveal this very, very grave secret only to discover the next day somebody else also knows it. 
How does this happen? It's because we have turned and we have cast a shadow in contrast to what we promised. But God doesn't turn. We Christian people need to be as dependable as it is humanly possible for us to be because we ought to be reflecting the Father of lights. And yet sometimes our lives reflect the devil. There was a funeral being held and casket was open and the deceased man was in the casket and his widow and, and uh, son were sitting on the front row and the preacher was talking such glowing statements about the deceased and finally the widow whispered over to her son and said go up there and look and see if that's your daddy that doesn't sound like him What am I saying? There ought to be in the lives of all of us the capability of everybody else being able to depend upon us without shadow of turning. But we have that human frailty that will not make that possible, though we ought to strive for it. Our word ought to be our bond. If we say we will be, then we will be. If we say we will do, then we shall do it. But we find ourselves in a position of not being sure that we can depend upon each other. Someone is supposed to be in church, but they don't show. To teach a Sunday school class, but... They don't show and doesn't even bother to call and advise anybody that they won't be present. He is shameful and cannot be tolerated in the Christian community. We as Christian people ought to be the image, the reflection of the Father of lights with whom is no variableness. All right, go on down to verse 19. He says, wherefore, which is a transition word, going on from the statement that he's made now to, uh, therefore, since that is true, then this ought to be true. When he says, my beloved brethren, three things he states now, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Let every man be swift to hear. Back in Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, are these words. I want you to listen to them. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Let me translate that in modern English. 
Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. Oh, that hurts. Sometimes we are flippant in our attitude in coming to the house of God as if there is some other purpose that we have here other than listening to what God has to say. And so our time off is occupied with uh, a lot of nonsensical things and sometimes even in the middle of a service there is private conversation and things of this nature going on when it's not possible for the person to be guarding his steps when he goes to the house of God and he is hearing, all he's doing is offering the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that which they do as evil. Verse 2, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou art upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Revelation 2, 3, and uh, well, in chapters 2 and 3, uh, many times to the young churches of Asia Minor, the Lord says, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. What are we saying? It's important for us as we come to worship to be sure that our ears are open to receive what God has to say to us and that we don't have our lives so cluttered up with other things that we can possibly go out of the church service without ever hearing what the Lord had to say. The scripture says the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. One of the things I've learned about counseling is that you can't be a good counselor until you learn to be a good listener. I think I can say that even further. You can't be a good friend until you've learned to be a good listener. The same is true of our relationship to God. If we're going to comprehend what he's saying, then we must listen with an open heart and an open mind. Instead of being so active with busyness or idle chatter or involvement in other things that our hearts are never ready to receive the Lord's word. This is one of the problems I think that we have as we come to church. Is that we're not ready to hear because we haven't kept silence before God. Secondly, he says that we should be slow to speak. What is that statement? Uh, don't put your mouth in gear till you start your brain or something like that. I forget exactly how it goes. 
Most of us have our mouths in gear before our brain has been activated. I have heard it said of many people, well, he sure doesn't say much. And you know what I've learned about those people? They know a whole lot more because they're listening and not talking. Then when we open our mouths, we will have something that is good to say. It will be well thought out. It will be properly toned and full of God's wisdom in preference to being just off the top of our head. And perhaps we shall regret what we have said. How many times have you and I said, oh, I wish I hadn't said that? A young lady came for counseling on one occasion and said to her pastor, I made a statement about somebody and I found out that it wasn't true. I want to undo all that I've done in that bad statement. He said, all right, I'm going to tell you what to do to accomplish that. I want you to take some feathers and I want you to go to the front door of every person to whom you have spoken that untruth and lay the feather on their front doorstep and come back and see me. Quite an idiotic request, but she did it. And she came back and said, I have done what you asked me to do. And he said, now I want you to retrace your steps and I want you to pick up all those feathers where you left them. And she said, but pastor, it will be impossible. They will have all blown away. Yes, that's true. For the idle words that we might speak, done by quick speaking and slow thinking, will cause us to lay feathers all over our community, which will have done the damage that they're going to do, and we can never recollect them and bring them back. They will have already dispersed. The Christian will be one who listens well to the Lord and to each other, and who speaks very, very cautiously, and then only after reverent thought. And thirdly, he says we should be slow to wrath. I want you to notice that he does not say that we should not experience wrath or express wrath, but we should simply be slow to wrath. Wrath is anger. Anger is a real problem. There have perhaps been more people hurt by angry words than anything else that has ever been done or said. If one cannot speak except in anger, one ought not speak. I do not know of many times that anger is productive. There are times that anger is productive, and I want to speak of those in a moment. 
But when it comes to most of the anger that you and I express, we are talking about anger at striking out at somebody because our feelings were hurt. That's the usual way that anger demonstrates itself. There are some things that we ought to be angry about. I would suggest that we ought to be angry about child abuse. I would suggest that we ought to be very angry about the abortion industry. We ought to be angry about alcoholism, about dope peddlers, about the blaspheming of God's name. We ought to be very angry as Jesus was angry when he took the whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. There are issues at which we need to express anger. But it takes wisdom to determine what those issues are and if it becomes nothing more than our personal feelings that are involved then we have stepped across the line into an area of anger where we do not have the right to use it. So our responses ought to be well thought out and planned and not just off the top of our head. When we are angry we usually are out of control. Undisciplined anger is uncontrolled anger and it will do its damage. When anger is vented against people, we're doing nothing more than venting our, our feelings against some person. You will notice as you study the life of Christ that there is, far as I know, and I'm sure I'm right, there is not a point in his life in which he vented his anger against any person. He suffered slander and humiliation. He suffered criticism. He suffered all of the abuses that could be hurled at any person. He died a death for which he was not guilty, and never once did he open his mouth. Never once. If we can vent our anger against those things that are right for venting anger, then we can use it scripturally. But if it's to be used only to satisfy our own souls and conscience, we will not find support in the scripture for that purpose. Now let me conclude with verse 21. When he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. What on earth is superfluity anyway? Well, it means, superfluity of naughtiness means to get rid of the remains of wickedness. Get rid of the remains of wickedness. Lay aside in our lives filthiness and the residues of those things that are wicked. <clears throat> Get that out of the way. Then he concludes, then and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. You know that word engrafted there is an interesting word. We all are acquainted with uh, 
the transplants that are going on in our world. You can have a liver transplant, a heart transplant, kidney transplants. What is happening is they are taking an organ that is not yours and grafting it into your body. They've now perfected that, that it's fairly routine, but there was a time there was a considerable amount of concern as to whether this graft would take. And if the body rejected this foreign object that was placed in it as far as the body was concerned, then of course the person was in jeopardy for his life. There was the fear that the body might reject the graft. James is saying, prepare your body to accept the grafting of God's word. And allow that graft to take. So that God's word is a, a vital part of you. So that you will absorb from it and live from it. The problem is, and we see it all the time, God's word is being rejected. It's being denied the right to be grafted into us. So it's burned off and becomes of no value. And the person continues to struggle with the affairs of life because he has not allowed the Word of God to become a vital part of him. How vital is God's word to your life and mine? I would hesitate to ask, I would not want to embarrass anyone, to ask the question, how many of you spent as much as one hour reading God's word this week? Honest answers probably in a congregation of this size would bring a number of us who would have to admit that we probably didn't read it at all. And then somehow or other God is supposed to come rushing to our rescue when he has attempted to engraft his word into us that we can feed on it and receive strength from it. When we are spurning it Rejecting it, denying it, having the, the, the privilege of growing and engrafting into us. Maybe some of the things that I've said this morning seem harsh, I don't know. I haven't intended to speak them for that purpose what I've tried to do is show what the scripture is saying about our relationship to God. The good things that come into our life come from God. Those things that are not good probably developed because we have rejected the engrafting of God's word into us. 
Therefore, it's the work of the devil and it's the work of our own lust to have things that are contrary to God's will. To be the kind of Christian we ought to be means that we ought to feed on God's word to the point that our lives are fully controlled by it. And to realize that good things in our life come from God. And if they are from God, they'll feed through us to others. And let me tell you, if it's not good coming out of us, it didn't come from God. It came from the devil himself. And our own willingness to serve him instead of serving God. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at james.com sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.